The reading is taken from Matthew, chapter 10, beginning at verse 17. Be on your guard against men. They will hand you over to the local councils and flog you in their synagogues. On my account, you will be brought before governors and kings as witnesses to them and to the Gentiles. But when they arrest you, do not worry about what, you're, about what to say or how to say it. At that time, you will be given what to say. For it will not be you speaking, but the spirit of your father speaking through you. Brothers will betray brothers to death and a father his child. Children will rebel against their parents and have them put to death. All men will hate you because of me, but he who stands firm to the end will be saved. When you are persecuted in one place, flee to another. I tell you the truth, you will not finish going through the cities of Israel before the Son of Man comes. A student is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the student to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If the head of the house has been called at Beelzebub, how much more the members of, the, of his household. So do not be afraid of them. There's nothing concealed that will not be disclosed or hidden that will not be made known. What I tell you in the dark, speak in the daylight. What is whispered in your ear, proclaim from the roofs. Do not be afraid of those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from the will of your father. And even the very hairs of your head are all numbered. So don't be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. Whoever acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge him before my Father in heaven. But whoever dis disowns me before men, I will disown him before my Father in heaven. Do not suppose that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies will be the members of his own household. Anyone who loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves his son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And anyone who does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. He who receives you receives me, and he who receives me receives the one who sent me. Anyone who receives a prophet because he is a prophet will receive a prophet's reward, and anyone who receives a righteous man because he is a righteous man will receive a righteous man's reward. And if anyone gives even a cup of cold water to one of these little ones because he is my disciple, I tell you the truth, he 
will certainly not lose his reward. This is the word of the Lord. Great, if you could have uh, that passage open. Uh, I'm going to refer to the whole passage, but you'll spot that I'm not going to go through the whole thing in detail. So don't fear, it is a long, uh, it's a long chapter, so I'm going to refer to the whole chapter, even something that we had last week as well. But let's pray as uh, we look at Matthew 10 together. Loving Father, your Holy Spirit caused these words to be written because you wanted us to hear Jesus' words. But they are not comfortable words. So Father, we ask that your Holy Spirit might now help us as we listen to them to understand them. But even more that, having listened and understood them, to then be able to live in humble obedience to all that we read. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. One of the uh, books I was reading as I was preparing for this, quoted from a missionary, uh, an American guy called Victor Cooligan, who's written a rather provocatively titled book, Ten Things I Wish Jesus Never Said. There's a book I want to read. And in the preface to that book, he writes this, With the rise of the health and wealth gospel and prosperity preaching, we have become accustomed to a comfortable, what a friend do we have in Jesus, Messiah. It's a picture of Jesus I call Jesus Light. Great taste, less demanding. Jesus is just interested in my happiness and nothing more. He wants me to be financially comfortable, physically fit, mentally and emotionally stable. He never demands of me anything that would cause these basic goals to be missed. Difficulties, trials and hardships in my life are only there because of a lack of faith on my part to believe that Jesus truly wants me to be happy. The reason it struck me was, if you remember when Bosco was here, Bosco and Heidi, in this country at the minute, training to go back to Uganda for church planting, the reason he wanted to go back to church plant was that this gospel I've just mentioned there is rife in Uganda. The growing churches are preaching a prosperity gospel. And he wants to go back and teach a biblical gospel and proclaim that. But later on, Victor writes this, the truth is, the teaching of Jesus was often harsh. He was not a preacher of convenience, but hardships. Not a preacher of comforts, but suffering. And when you read chapter 10, it is hard to miss the theme of suffering, or more particularly, persecution. That is suffering because the world basically rejects Jesus. Suffering and persecution for those who obediently respond to the mission call. Back in verse 14, Jesus speaks of those who go for him, possibly facing unfavorable reactions. In verse 23, it speaks of reality of persecution, but note it says not if they persecute you, rather when they persecute you. In verse 16, Jesus speaks of being sent as a sheep in the midst of wolves. Then in verses 17 to 19, about being brought before wolves, before the Jewish synagogue court, be flogged and then dragged before the Gentile rulers to be sentenced to jail or to death. Jesus even goes as far as to say that one's own family might end up becoming an enemy, to the point where a brother is turned against brother, a father his child, a child his parents. There, verses 21, 22, 35 and 36. 
Jesus also, a number of times in this passage, speaks about the fact that those who go in his name should expect to be hated by everyone, verse 22, and of the real prospects of being martyred. Imagine what it's like being one of the 12, being sent out. And that is your preparation training course. I've been on many training courses, discipleship courses, but very few of them sounded like that. But this is Jesus' call to Christian mission. And I want to ask you, who's up for it? Who's up for it? Who wants to sign up for that? Family division? Hatred? Death? Form a queue now. Nobody's moving. Nobody's moving. That's scary. It's time we got real about what being a follower of Jesus really means. Verses 24, 25, Jesus could not be plainer. See what he says? A student is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the student to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. What is Jesus saying? Why do you think you are above experiencing what Jesus experienced? Why do you think it's any different for you? You see, on the cross, Jesus bore the punishments and suffering for our sin so that we don't have to face it. But he did not bear the suffering that we have to bear in order that we might follow him. Jesus says later on in this passage, Take up your cross and follow me. To follow Christ means to follow a cross-shaped, suffering, self-sacrificing, giving our lives to death kind of life. You cannot read this passage without coming to that conclusion. And today is our Mission Pledge Sunday, when we focus on our commitment to be partners with those who are working for Christ beyond trials, some locally, as we've just heard, not forgetting Jenny up in Bradford, which is almost overseas. I mean, it's north, isn't it? And of course, our mission partners working overseas as well. And you see, if what Jesus describes here as the reality of mission work, for those who are prepared to go for him, then surely as a church we must confess that our support of them is woefully poor and inadequate. It is woefully poor and inadequate. If this is the call they have responded to, you see, what they've responded to is not an idea of going on some exotic holiday or life experience. I've been to Belgium. It is not exotic. You see, they have given up masses to respond obediently to the call of God. Just think of Charles and Francis in Belgium. They planted a church many years ago, and it has been one struggle after another. It is hardly grown at all. The church at growth amongst evangelical churches in Belgium is tiny. I have to say, going to the place where they are, it felt one of the most dead spiritual places I have ever walked into. It had a real sense of, of cloud and gloom about it, certainly the time that I was there. I just think Francis, two years ago, faced complete burnouts had to come back to the UK. In fact, BEM, the organisation they work for, it is really, really struggling big time. And in fact, Charles is having to almost run that as well as trying to run a church plant. Think of Heidi and Bosco, back in the UK, training to church plant back in, 
in Uganda. Do you remember when they were back there? They were working with street children. And when they were here a couple of weeks ago, they said their house has just been burgled by one of the kids they were helping on the streets. Just think of the Sumpsers, uh, Martin uh, and Lynn's uh, uh, children going off to Nazareth. They've had a kind of comfortable academic uh, life in one sense in Europe, but now heading to Nazareth. Children suddenly going to be the only non-Arabic speakers in an Arabic school. I think of a guy called Phil Grace. Phil and I had to share a room at university in Exeter. I met up with him for the first time in 30 years. He was at Spring Harvest. I met with him just during Easter holidays. He was always quiet, but it was like someone had removed him from within his body. He's been a missionary in Morocco, working amongst Muslims. It's all been underground because he'd have been arrested and put in jail or thrown out of the country. Well, eventually he was arrested and thrown out of the country. Suddenly him and the family all had to go. And instead of great stories of what amazing things God had done, and it wasn't that God hadn't done anything, but he looked back and just wondered what it had all been for. Been there 15 years. Like someone had just sucked the life out of him. It had been incredibly hard, and it found the thing of coming home incredibly hard. See, these people have heard the call. They've become the answer to the call at the end of chapter 9. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. They've done so willingly. They've faced the cost, the enormous personal cost. In so many ways, they've set aside a lot of comforts and security that we take for granted every day. And I want to suggest to you, and especially to myself, that we owe it to them to take seriously our support of them as our mission partners. That is the heart of this passage. What should our godly response be? And I want to suggest two things, one uh, much longer than the other one. The first is this. Gospel goers depend on gospel givers. Gospel goers depend on gospel givers. To say gospel goers are those who willingly head off, leaving behind security and comfort of home, and they depend on God's providential provision through Christian giving and hospitality. The Jeromas depend totally on the giving of churches in order for them to be able to put food and drink on the table every day and do what they do. Heidi and Bosco do exactly the same. At the minute, I know the Jeromas, the amount that churches give them does not actually cover what it costs them to live every day. They're having to delve into some savings they've got squirreled away somewhere just to do what they need to do each and every day. I notice this passage uh, speaks to us about both the goers and the givers. The goers back in verse 9, these are the disciples at this point being told to go off. They're being told to go and to take nothing with them. That is, part of going is to live a dependent life to depend on God's provision through other people. That is part of the cost of being a goer. But also there are givers, those who welcome the goers into their homes, who provide the food and the lodging, travel expenses. These are the people who this passage describes, verse 11, as worthy, because they make it possible for the goers to go and do their mission work. Now some of us may end up going on the mission field, And I want to say this to you very straight. Every single one of us here needs to ask God and to listen carefully. Do you want me to be a goer? 
Do you want me to be a goer, Lord? To leave the security of home, job, and even family. Maybe somewhere else in the UK, maybe beyond the UK. And I want to ask you, are you listening? I find it very striking that at the end of chapter 9, Jesus asked, tells the disciples to ask God to send out workers into the harvest field. And then what happens in verse 1 of chapter 10? What happens in verse 1 of chapter 10? He sends them out. You see, he tells them in, in the last verse of chapter 9 to pray that God would send people out. And then what happens in verse 1 of chapter 10? They get sent out. You see it? Pray for God to send out workers and then listen because you may be the one that you are praying for. Don't pray expecting he's going to send somebody else. Pray anticipating he may well send you too. And don't think, oh, I'm not the going type. Well, Matthew goes on to list here in verses 2 to 4 all of the disciples. Why? Because none of them are the going type. They're fishermen, tax collectors. They're not the going type. They're ordinary blokes. God does not send the going type. He sends those whom he's chosen, those who are willing to listen to his call. Guy and Becky Martin Scott heading to theological college this September. Maisie out there in the car park doing uh, washing cars. And please, uh, if you've not had your car washed and you're staying around for coffee, she's washing cars with her mum and dad and other members of the youth group because she's taken a year out to go and serve God in Zimbabwe for the next year and needs to raise the money to do it. Heidi, before she went out to Uganda, was a teacher at Queen's. Philip Sumter, an academic theologian. I've told some of you before that in my last church, we supported a couple who worked in a remote mountain village in Kenya uh, amongst hunter-gatherers. Yes, I went to visit them, and really, they caught their food with poison arrows and bows. And they were out spreading the gospel village to village on these mountaintops that it took three to four hours of driving to get to every time they went up there. That couple only became Christians in their 50s and only went on the mission field, they heard God's call, in their 60s and only came back when they reached 80, when they're told that that's when they had to finish. Before he went, he was a TV repairman. He was not the going type. I took a group out to visit them and amongst that group was one quiet, unassuming manager for Pizza Express in the southwest, in, sorry, the southeast region. He was in his kind of late 30s, early 40s, had young children. He is now with his wife and children living in Tanzania doing village-to-village evangelism and leader training. If you'd have asked me who was the least a going type, if the group of people I took out, I would have pointed at him without a shadow of doubt. When I heard they were going on the mission field, I'm sorry I doubt God, but I thought, that cannot be true. Not in a million years. And that is where they are right now. Training church leaders, going village to village. And he was going Pizza Express to Pizza Express. Don't tell me you're not a going type. Do not tell me that, because I will not believe you. Therefore, I want to ask you, are you listening? Whatever your age, however young, however old. Maybe he's only asking you to go down to town and volunteer at Open Door. Maybe that's the extent of the going, but he's still asking you to go. Some of that may be a bit uncomfortable for a while. 
But are you listening? Are you listening? The reality, though, is that most of us may not be goers in that kind of overseas sense. And I want you to hear then, if you are not a goer, then you are a giver. If you are not a goer, then you are a giver. And the beautiful thing here is that Jesus essentially says to givers, keep going, because without you, the mission fails. In verse 40, Jesus equates receiving or supporting those who do go as receiving or supporting Jesus himself and his heavenly Father. You see, our giving to mission partners is in Jesus' eyes exactly the same as giving to him and to God directly. To neglect giving and to neglect supporting our mission partners is to actively neglect Jesus and his heavenly Father. Seems to me that's what Jesus is saying in this passage, without any doubt. Actually, there's also a positive side of it. Jesus speaks of givers as getting a reward. It's there in verse 41. Anyone who receives a prophet because he's a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. Anyone who receives a righteous man because he's a righteous man will receive a righteous man's reward. And even just a very small amount of insignificant, as someone was saying, wasn't it? Just that insignificant act. That was Sam this morning. Even insignificant things. A cup of cold water, verse 42. Just a little refreshing drink will receive a reward. What that tells me is that God watches for our response to how we respond to mission partners very carefully. This is not to emotionally, yes it is, it's to emotionally blackmail you. But only because I think that's what the passage is saying, is this, is that our response to what Mark has shared with us, our response to the needs of our mission partners, Jesus cares about very much indeed. And in fact, it will make an impact on how he deals with us. Not to our eternal salvation, no. But it's about reward. It will have an impact somewhere down the line for us. It seems to me that there is a command to us in here as givers. It is to be sacrificial. Actually, just as sacrificial as those who are willing to go. As one person put it, if you're not going to go, you must give. And if you're not going to give generously, then you're going to go where the sodomites went. With the closed-doored and the closed-fisted, God will shake off the dust from his feet. The world is at war with Christ. There is no time for cowards and half-hearted hospitality and financial support, whether we go or we give to the goers or else. There are details in that booklet about how to give. Can I urge you, please, to prayerfully consider how you might financially support those mission partners that we've adopted as a church? Secondly, and much more quickly, Gospel goers need gospel prayers and encouragers. Gospel goers need gospel prayers and encouragers. This here very clearly, doesn't it? Jesus is saying that mission is dangerous and costly. He also says it's very divisive. It's divisive in society and it can be divisive in the home. And therefore I want to say to you, do not minimise the personal cost that mission partners have made to be doing what they're doing. Step out in leadership always has costs. To step out, uh, to go for Christ in other places, and often it is family that bear the cost. Often it is family that bear the cost. Someone said to me, you know, uh, was just querying at eight o'clock, that thing of, you know, uh, families going with their children. 
Actually, it isn't just the parents, isn't it? The, the children bear the cost as well of that move to the mission field. And, and it is always going to be costly. Mission work will be costly. And the, the, past, the, the verse that really struck me in all of this may not seem relevant at first, but let me show you. It comes in verse 34. Jesus says, Do not suppose that I have come to bring peace to the earth. Now that's really striking, isn't it? Because if you went and asked people on the streets what they thought Jesus came to bring, my guess is one of the first words would be peace, wouldn't they? And actually, if I went around this church and asked you, probably one of the first words you'd come up with is peace. But the thing Jesus says is, don't think I've come to bring peace at all. I haven't. Now, what does he mean by that? Of course, he cares about peace. But Christian peace comes in a different way and with a different timing than the way that our world would think about peace. Yes, there is peace available now. There is peace with God. We are all enemies of God's without Christ. But Colossians 1.20 tells us that it's through his death on the cross we are made one again. We have given peace with our Heavenly Father. And through that, so we begin to have peace with others as we learn what it means to forgive and be forgiven, to love and be loved. And so we taste through Christ what true peace is as the Holy Spirit enables us to live out that's peace that Christ brings. But the Bible is clear that true peace will only ever come one day in the future when Jesus returns. Lions and lambs will only lie down when Jesus returns. Right now, the lamb, I do not hold out much hope for it. When Jesus returns, then true peace will be established. And what Jesus is saying is this, that at the moment, the gospel message itself will be divisive. It will bring aggro. It will bring hard times because people don't like, many do not like to hear the gospel. Who wants to hear that he's sinful at the core of his being? Who wants to hear that Jesus' death has opened a door to freedom and peace, but only if we're willing to stop rebelling against God? Who wants to hear that God won't let our ignoring him go unchallenged forever? The judgment waits for those who won't accept this God, given means of peace through Jesus. The truth is, when people hear the gospel, they don't all fall to their knees and think, lovely, I'm so glad you told me. Well, that hasn't been my experience. Has it been yours? The truth is, the Christian message is divisive. It is offensive to many. And therefore, to be someone who gives their lives to proclaim that message is a tough calling. What these mission partners of ours have done is a tough calling. They get repeated knockbacks, rejection, and even opposition. Yes, of course, there are great moments. Of course there are, and we celebrate those, but it is a tough calling. And Jesus here is saying to them, you know, don't be afraid. You know, I love you. I'm with you. God knows you. He knows every hair on your head. Don't be afraid. Stand firm. But he's saying that because he knows it's going to be tough to stand firm. It's going to be tough to not be afraid. So I want to ask you, how are you going to personally encourage and spur on our mission partners? How are you personally going to do that? Emails, letters, phone calls? How are you personally going to find out what it is that is going on for them right now that they need prayer for? Emails. Social media. Prayer letters. How are you going to support your mission partners 
in the midst of their costly mission on which they've been called to go. The bottom line is that whether we're a goer or a giver, the response is the same. Jesus demands a wholehearted response. In effect, he says to us, we should be saying this. Here's my life, Lord. It's all yours. I'll go where you would have me go. Do what you would have me do. Give what you would have me give. Suffer what you would have me suffer. For the goer, for the giver, the challenge is about everything. About all for Christ. I'll leave you with that challenge. I'll leave it with me. Gulp. Amen.